Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Last week was perhaps the worst week in crypto history. FTX, the second largest exchange and standard bearer for the industry, imploded in a storm of allegations and filed for bankruptcy. The fallout is ongoing, with customers nursing heavy losses and the industry teetering. I want to know what caused the implosion and if it could bring down more crypto institutions or even spread to the wider financial system. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is a bank run? Okay, let's get into it. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to a friend who's really into crypto and he said, Michael, why do you never speak about crypto on the podcast unless some big scandals erupted? And I said, well, we never have to wait very long, do we? (laughs) (laughs) Robin, this is maybe the biggest of the lot. So far. (laughs) But look, I think the tone for this is difficult to gauge because I know people who've lost money with this implosion of FTX. Yeah. And it doesn't look like they're going to get their money back. So, you know, many people are quite angry, justifiably, about this. Oh, definitely. I saw on the Pension Craft Forum some of the members speaking about they've lost money. So I think it's important to discriminate between the poor people who've been kind of duped in a way by the exchange and those who are kind of culpable. So maybe let's start off by saying, what is FTX for everyone who doesn't really know? So this is a crypto exchange. Now, any exchange, its job is you take fiat money, as crypto enthusiasts call it, or just normal money is what we'd call it. And then they convert it into some type of cryptocurrency and it allows you to convert it back if you need to, or to transmit it to another address once it's converted into cryptocurrency. So it tells you what it's worth. It allows you to buy and sell cryptocurrency. That should be its role. And it's a pretty simple job on the face of it. Yeah. And as we said, FTX was one of the most prominent crypto exchanges, either the second or third largest, depending on what stats you look at. And it spent a huge amount on marketing. So something like $300 million to woo retail investors over the past couple of years. They bought the stadium naming rights to the Miami Heat basketball team. They signed sports partnerships with Stephen Curry and Tom Brady, and they did a Super Bowl ad with Larry David, who I love from Kirby Enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) And his quote's brilliant. (laughs) And he's in there playing this hilarious role where he's going like, oh, I would never put my money in something like this, basically. (laughs) And I'm never wrong about these things. It's brilliant. And also their founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, everyone calls him SBF, so maybe we'll stick to that. He was extremely prominent, lobbying for regulation, making political donations. And, you know, there's that picture of him sat alongside Bill Clinton and Tony Blair in the Bahamas (laughs) at this crypto conference. I wonder what they're going to do about this, whether they're going to kind of distance themselves from it. How are they going to save their reputations from it? (laughs) (laughs) But I think so many people have been shilling it, FTX. You know, they pay a lot of money to do it, probably. What are they going to do? Are they going to cut all association with it? Deny they ever supported it, really? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think the message to get across to people who aren't so into crypto is that FTX was massive as far as crypto goes. It is synonymous with cryptocurrency, and it's a huge deal that it's failed. There's kind of like a Robin Hood for crypto, isn't it? Yeah. Now, one of the things that FTX, the exchange, had was its own token called FTT. And that comes into the story later on, because essentially anybody can make their own cryptocurrency but you've got to make other people believe in it. Otherwise, it doesn't have value. And the other thing to remember at FTX is SBF, who owns it, had this hedge fund, I think we'll call it Alameda Research, 
which kind of had a symbiotic relationship with the exchange, with FTX. And again, that becomes crucial to the story later on. So those are the background pieces here. Symbiotic or parasitic, you know, we'll find out later on. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But the background to all of this is that 2022 has seen a huge drawdown in the value of cryptocurrencies, presumably driven by interest rates going up. And just this week, if you look at what happened to risky assets, US inflation was a little bit lower than people expected. And equity surged upwards. I mean, it was just incredible, the rally. The dollar weakened, the Nasdaq rallied like crazy, all the mega cap tech stocks jumped hugely, like Amazon rose 12% in a day. But in the same period of time, cryptocurrency took another leg downwards, and it was because of this event. So I don't think you can overestimate the impact on cryptocurrency and the entire space from this huge shock. Yeah, because usually the value of cryptocurrency kind of tracks the value of the stock market, doesn't it? Whereas that's now broken down. And it's broken down the wrong way. I mean, (laughs) it's gone down when risky assets have gone up. So I think the size of the impact can't be underestimated. And it's a tale as old as time, isn't it, really, in finance, that when the value of assets start falling, (laughs) that's when you find out where the pockets of leverage are, where people have taken too much risk, and then you get these big blow-ups. And that's what's happening in crypto this year. So we've talked about Terra Luna and that algorithmic stablecoin on a podcast before. So we won't go into it again, but that collapsed in May. And that's kind of the seed and the contagion of that has rippled through and kind of led to this. So, for example, the FT's got something which they call the Crypto Crypt, which lists all of the things which have gone wrong for cryptocurrency over the past year. The knock-on from the Terra Luna collapse was Three Arrows Capital. That was a hedge fund, mostly to manage the personal wealth of its owners. But that in turn triggered problems with Voyager Digital, and that was a crypto broker. And they'd lent Three Arrows Capital $670 million. So you can see how it's kind of like dominoes in the sense that there's a lot of leverage. And it's a fairly self-contained ecosystem where each of the entities lends and borrows from each other. Yeah, and that trail of dominoes eventually leads all the way to FTX. So like you say, Voyager Digital went bankrupt, as did BlockFi, as did Celsius. And the interesting thing is that FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, the owner of FTX, started bailing out all these failed firms, taking them out of bankruptcy, lending them money and taking on their balance sheets effectively. But what was weird at the time, I remember thinking, where's he got all of his money from? How come he's so successful, particularly after we've had a massive fall in cryptocurrencies over the course of the year? Because, you know, okay, so he made a lot of money in crypto. I assumed it was still invested in crypto. So surely he had less money like everyone else. And as it turned out, he probably did. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation about why he started saving these companies. Presumably, it was to try and fend off the contagion. And the thing is, you know, I made a video about BlockFi and I tried it out. But fortunately, I took my money out in time. (laughs) But BlockFi seemed really legit. You know, they were very cautious, it seemed, with the way they manage their risk. And a lot of people, I remember on PensionCraft, a lot of people in our crypto channel were saying Celsius is really safe. I mean, they all seem like legitimate businesses when you go on the website. I mean, that's the point, right? Their systems function well. It feels like you're interacting with a real broker, which you are, but you don't know what's behind all that. But the point about Celsius was that Mashinsky, who is the boss, was always on Twitter having these kind of open sessions with clients where, you know, you could ask him anything you wanted and he gave kind of plausible answers. But Celsius too has now gone bankrupt and they can't take money because... Well, the bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. Good point, Robin. 
The SBF was looking to bail out Celsius as well, but he didn't. He did bail out Voyager and BlockFi. I was so pleased because Celsius, I actually applied to try out their account, but they refused me. So (laughs) (laughs) You're too risky for them, are you? You see, my best trades are always accidental. So that was actually a lucky miss. And the thing to understand here is what's the entity that's actually bailing out these failed crypto lenders and brokers? It's actually Alameda, the hedge fund SBF owns, which is associated with FTX. And that kind of becomes crucial because what we've now found out is that at the time, SBF secretly transferred billions of dollars of FTX money, client money that people had deposited on the exchange to Alameda to pay for these bailouts effectively. And what that was collateralized with, as in what Alameda gave back to FTX, was FTT, their own token. (laughs) Their own token that they made up. So just to recap... You create a token, so literally that costs you nothing except for the setup fees. Suddenly that gains in value so that it becomes worth billions. You keep most of the tokens for yourself. So you've literally rustled money out of thin air, which is quite impressive. Yeah, you've just basically written down on a piece of paper, I owe you this amount of money and passed it from one pocket to the other. And then you've got all the client funds into your own hedge fund. So then you're going to trade your client's money. And if markets are going up, it's all probably fine, right? Because you'll make a profit and you'll be able to give the clients their money back. And you've made a huge amount of profit for yourself using their funds. Yeah, the story of Alameda is quite interesting because what it actually started out as, it seems, is a market maker for FTX. It was there to offer liquidity on the exchange and to profit from the spread effectively. A legitimate business, like a low margin business, but one with relatively low risk if you do it well. And it was also looking for low risk arbitrage trades. So it wasn't taking big directional positions. But then it seems to have got greedy and started taking huge directional bets at exactly the time it was starting to get client money passed to it. You know, I mean, again, tale as old as time where you've got a market that's trending upwards, you pile in and take a leverage bet. And basically a squirrel could make money in that kind of environment. But the point at which the party ends is when markets go into reverse. And then suddenly you're nursing leverage losses. Because the market making business itself isn't hugely profitable. You are literally picking up nickels and dimes, making very small gains on a large volume of trades. They also had a go at yield farming, and that's hugely more risky than just market making. And I know SBF on the Odd Lots podcast earlier this year had quite an interesting description (laughs) of yield farming himself. (laughs) So he described it as... The magic box. (laughs) So I think the way he described it was a magic box that only has value because people put money into it. But the way I think of it is kind of like Tinkerbell economics, where if you've ever been to a pantomime at Christmas, at one point it looks like Tinkerbell, the fairies, dying. And the only way you can resuscitate Tinkerbell is if all the children who believe in fairies clap their hands. (laughs) And this is a way for the people in the panto to kind of whip up a frenzy in the children and say, come on, children, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. And everyone claps their hands and then Tinkerbell magically recovers. Well, this is a little bit like that. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we said we were trying to try and not be too smug today, Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think you've got to describe it as it is. Yeah. But anyway, look, he described it on this interview, which was on the Odd Lots podcast. I think he actually said the word Ponzi, a Ponzi scheme. And he said that there was a depressing amount of validity to calling it a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, Matt Levine's reaction to his answer was so funny. (laughs) That was priceless. He said, I think of myself as like a fairly cynical person. And that was so much more cynical than how I would have described yield farming. 
you're just like, well, I'm in the Ponzi business and it's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) It was shocking. I just don't understand why he would have admitted to that in that interview. But still, they got into yield farming and eventually they started to make these big directional bets. There's always a temptation to do that. Like when I started out in investment banking, we had prop desks which would do that. You know, they trade the bank's own money and they made so much money in some years that nobody questioned it. But eventually, of course, what happened is a lot of these markets went into reverse. Those imploded, the prop desks. And surprisingly enough, they don't have it much anymore at any investment bank. So market makers usually take very little directional risk. That seems to be the story of crypto over the last year or two, is that they're learning the lessons that the mainstream financial system learned over the last hundred years on like a speed run. (laughs) (laughs) Including having a central bank, you know, like having this fund which is going to bail out the failed crypto ventures. Yeah. Very central bank-like. But then once they got into the kind of directional bets, they were doing things like trading on news flow. Because if you're a market maker... If your first inkling that something big's happened in terms of news is that everybody's calling you saying, I'd like to buy, buy, buy or sell, 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 then you're kind of behind the curve. So what they started to do was tell all of the quants in the team to start looking at social media. And that way they could monitor news events as they happened and kind of get ahead of it. Plus, they could take directional bets, which because of their scale, but also their position as a market maker, they could really clean up on because they had lots of capital to invest. In theory, it sounds good, but it doesn't seem to have worked out. (laughs) So let's come on to the last two weeks then. How did this implosion actually go down? Because it was interestingly triggered in a way by their big rival, the other big exchange, Binance. So here, the Binance CEO, who's called Changpeng Zhao. Everyone calls him CZ. Or CZ. Said his firm was going to liquidate its holdings of FTT due to unspecified recent revelations, okay? So (laughs) presumably he found out something about FTX, which he didn't like. I mean, you could say it was personal as well, because apparently they used to be friends, him and SBF. Yeah, it's an interesting backstory. So one of the largest early investors in FTX was Binance. So in 2019, CZ invested $100 million into FTX for 20% of the firm, I believe. But by late in 2021, the end of last year, FTX had by that point become a big competitor to Binance and CZ wanted to sell his FTX stake. So SBF bought him out for around $2 billion. And part of that deal involved Binance receiving a lot of these FTT tokens, the (laughs) native token of FTX. So they held these on their balance sheet, Binance. And then on November the 6th last week, as you said, CZ, the CEO of Binance, tweeted out, As part of Binance's exit from FTX equity last year, we received roughly $2.1 billion equivalent in Binance's token and FTT, FTX's token. But due to the recent revelations that have come to light, we have decided to liquidate all remaining (laughs) FTT tokens on our book. So it's basically like, boom, we're just dumping all of your token on the market. So this is kind of like the Fed deciding it was going to dump $9 trillion worth of treasuries into the open market. Yeah. And everyone was like, are you just trying to bring down FTX, right? Is this your goal? You've just sort of done a mafia hit job. Or when you say revelations, what are you referring to? And there was a report on Coindesk that half of Alameda Research's assets 
were its own FTT tokens. So presumably Binance thought, hmm, this is all going to blow up. We want to be first out of the door. So it's kind of like the scene from Margin Call where the CEO says, be first, be smarter or cheat. So those are the three options when one of these markets is going to reverse. And obviously he went for the be first choice. Yes, let's stick to that from a legal point of view. Okay. <laughs> uh, but interestingly, SBF then tweeted out, FTX is fine, assets are fine, FTX has enough to cover all client holdings. And this was November the 7th, right? The day after the big sales. Yeah, so he's basically like, nothing to see here, guys. Everything's fine. But it unfortunately looked a little bit like that meme of the dog in the fire. Oh. <laughs> Those tweets were later deleted. Now, at this point, people were clued up to the fact that when somebody says everything is fine, that usually means that everything is not fine. <laughs> so between Sunday the 6th and Monday the 7th, customers withdrew $6 billion of their money from FTX. And inevitably, FTX shut down withdrawals. What else can they do? They can't keep paying out all the money. Although they should have been able to. And it basically saw the valuation of FTX implode from $32 billion of market cap to zero, basically in a single day. So Tuesday the 8th of November, there was a joint announcement where both SBF and CZ tweeted out an announcement that Binance was going to acquire FTX. Yeah, which was kind of remarkable because these are the big rivals. Like, if SBF's looking for a bailout for FTX, you'd think that CZ, who caused this whole bank run in the first place, would probably be the last person he'd go to. Which kind of said to us, hmm, things are not good, right, at FTX, if Binance is the only people potentially willing to bail them out. But it was subject loaded caveats, like, let's do our due diligence. And then the very next day... Sure enough, CZ walked away from the deal. Now, presumably, he did his due diligence and he was worried about what he saw. And what he saw was the balance sheet, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> now, Brennan, I don't know if a spreadsheet can make you laugh. <laughs> but if one can, then the SDX balance sheet is the thing. I'm not sure where the FT got this from, but on FT Alphaville, they've actually published a screenshot of what's supposedly the actual spreadsheet. Doesn't look much like a balance no. sheet to me. <laughs> I mean, it's literally one page of a spreadsheet and it's kind of organised, interestingly. So we've got a list of liabilities, so far so good, a list of assets, and the assets are split into three chunks, right? So we've got liquid, less liquid and illiquid and some very odd entries. I'm not sure how they've categorised these as they have. I've never seen these categories before in my life. But we've got things like cryptocurrencies in the less liquid portion. But then in the illiquid portion, we've got things like Trump lose in upper caps. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that refers to. There's $7 million of Trump lose on the balance sheet. I assume it's some kind of spread bet on Trump to lose, like Donald Trump to lose something. Who knows? I mean, that's a small part of the balance sheet, just 7 million. But it's kind of worrying. Yeah, right? yeah. You've got this nonsense on there. But the big problems, really, are when you look at the biggest holdings on their balance sheet. So one of the largest is something called Serum, which is a cryptocurrency. And is listed as having $2.1 billion of value on their balance sheet. Whereas the market cap of the whole of the Serum token is under $100 million. But that's after they marked it down. In fact, there are two columns for the less liquid section. And under Serum, they've marked it down to $2.2 where it says deliverable. Presumably, this is to deliver to their creditors. 
And then before this week is the other column adjacent to it. And that says 5.4 billion. So they've already marked it down by 50%. But Roman, when the market cap in total <laughs> of a currency is $100 million, how can you hold $2.1 billion of it? Well, it's Tinkerbell economics. This is phantom math. <laughs> if you believe in fairies, Michael, clap your hands. And unfortunately, if there's only one person applauding, you know you're in trouble. This is the sound of one hand clapping this balance sheet. (laughs) My favourite entry, which Matt Levine wrote a whole column about yesterday, is just titled, and this is literally what it's titled on the balance sheet, Hidden, Poorly Internally Labeled Fiat Account, $8 billion. (laughs) (laughs) On their official balance sheet, Hidden, Poorly Labeled Fiat Account. Yeah, I'm not sure what that means. So let me just read out from Matt Levine's description of that entry. You cannot apply ordinary arithmetic to numbers in a cell-labelled, hidden, poorly internal labelled account. The result of adding or subtracting those numbers with ordinary numbers is not a number. It is prison. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's not wrong. But the basic conclusion of the FT's article is to say the FTX had maybe as little as $900 million in liquid sellable assets versus $9 billion of liabilities. That's a big hole. But the question is, how did they get into this state, right, where there's this massive black hole on their balance sheet? Now, in any normal company, you're going to have a very careful accounting system. You know, you have auditors who stop you doing this kind of slightly questionable stuff or very questionable. And obviously, those checks and balances just weren't in place. Yeah, I think that's maybe even understating it. So Reuters reported that SBF had implemented some accounting rules which allowed a backdoor in their system where he could just at will move customer funds from FTX to Alameda without alerting any accounting controls or (laughs) any of the accounting team at the company. I don't know if that's true, but that's what Reuters is reporting. And the mechanism in inverted commas was built in such a way that no red flags were raised by accounting or internal compliance when the adjustments were made. At least that's what Reuters say. I mean, it's just a bizarre company all around, isn't it, FTX? Yeah, I mean, if you compare this with a traditional money manager, there's just no way these things could happen. Or if they did... The same thing happens. They go bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. But that's why traditional finance is so heavily regulated, because this kind of stuff did happen in the past, you know, very early on, maybe even 100 years ago, such that, you know, most people don't even remember. But that's why we have all this crazy regulation in the financial space. If you've got money, it attracts bad behaviour. So you have to ensure that these checks are in place. So the upshot of all of this is that FTX eventually files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the US. Now, just to explain what Chapter 11 is, if Chapter 11 happens, it's so that a firm is kind of protected from its creditors. And the hope is that the firm can go back into business. Now, there are certain protections which fall into place when it happens. And the idea is that you protect the capital. And this is to ensure that creditors can be repaid. Yeah, you say protect the capital. (laughs) The very next day after the bankruptcy, FTX is hacked. Let's say it's hacked. (laughs) And $600 million of their remaining assets just are flowing out. And you can see it happening on the blockchain. They're all flowing out. It's so funny. I first realised this when I saw a tweet about someone saying, look at this address. All of this money is being moved into this address. Oh, that's odd. And then sure enough, it's kind of like one of these cartoons in Mickey Mouse where, you know, they do a bank heist and they're sucking money out of a vault with a kind of hoover. 
I mean, I don't want to prejudge the inevitable investigations that are going to happen here, but it doesn't look good right, <laughs> to claim a hack the day after the bankruptcy. The funny thing is that SBF resigned as CEO of FTX at the same time. And the man who was appointed as the interim CEO is John J. Ray III. And this is the same man who led Enron through their bankruptcy proceedings. They say history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. But I was looking at the bankruptcy filing and I was kind of staggered by the fact that in section A19, they say that there could be more than 1 million creditors in these chapter 11 cases. As such, the debtors submit that calls exist to modify that requirement such that the debtors will file a consolidated list of their top 50 creditors. The top 50 list. So it's kind of like top of the pops for creditors, but... Do you remember Top of the Pops, Michael? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but look, they've got so many creditors that they're even having to restrict the list of people they owe money to. So I think the proceedings will be so complex and we've got over 100 legal entities under the FTX hood that, you know, it'll keep lawyers in business for years to come. And I can't imagine that creditors, you know, people who've lost money on the exchange, the institutions that put money into FTX, I can't believe they're going to get much recompense at the end of the day. I just don't think there's going to be the money there. But what shocked me was a list of investors. And, you know, I mean, some of the people are the usual suspects. So, for example, SoftBank has invested a lot of money into FTX, but also companies like BlackRock. I was surprised by that. And another one was the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan. Now, why is a teacher's pension plan investing in FTX? Yeah, they only put a relatively small amount of money in compared to their plan, but it doesn't look good, right, for the due diligence at a pension fund. And you're saying, well, if you're putting money into something like this, what else are you putting money into? But my favourite of the uh, investors in FTX was Sequoia Capital, which is a venture capital firm. And they've actually released transcripts of like why they invested in FTX. <laughs> like, this was around on the internet before. And so they were on a Zoom call with SBF. And in their chat at the side of the Zoom call, as SBF's talking, one of the partners at the venture capital firm says, I love this founder, all in caps. One says, I am 10 out of 10, guys. Another says, yes, exclamation marks. They're basically sold on this vision where SBF is saying that his company is about the future of money itself with a total addressable market of every person on the entire planet. But what they didn't really know is that while this was going on, this exact Zoom call, SBF is sitting there and playing a nice game of League of Legends <laughs> on his computer, <laughs> the computer game, throughout the whole meeting. And he's just like spieling while playing League of Legends. And this is one thing about him. If you hear his interviews, he's absolutely brilliant because he speaks in these full sentences, beautifully structured paragraphs, where he expresses his ideas very clearly. And apparently he can do it at the same time as playing League of Legends. However, FT Alphaville looked at his score on League of Legends and apparently he's not very good. Yeah, I mean, if they'd known that, right, at the time they were investing, maybe they think, oh, maybe he's not great at running a crypto exchange either. I mean, you're right, though, that to me, the most interesting part of this story is not big crypto firm blows up. That happens, right? The story here is that this is the most prominent and sort of institutionally accepted of all the crypto firms. Like you say, SBF was the kind of genius that was held up as running it. So as is always the case in these stories, he made the front cover of Fortune magazine and the title of the piece is the next Warren Buffett. That's a curse, isn't it? <laughs> As always. <laughs> so who else have we seen that happen to? Kathy Wood. Yeah. We've seen it happen to... Elizabeth Holmes. 
it's almost a rite of passage for bankruptcy. <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes was the next Steve Jobs, that's right. I mean, I've heard it said that the reason Warren Buffett has had such persistent outperformance over, you know, 60 years, he's done something hardly anyone can do, is because he's literally the only person on the planet who can't be called the next Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> but the other two investors that caught my eye was Tom Brady, who's apparently a football star in the United States. Did you just say he's apparently a football star? I've got no idea. He's the biggest player of all time. Really? The most successful American footballer. Why are you saying he's your favourite? You don't know who he is. But him and Giselle Bündchen. Yeah, I think they were married at one point. And they made this ad, which really shocked me because they were just shilling this thing completely shamelessly, FTX. And there's this kind of ad where they're sitting around in their nice house. You know, they're talking about FTX and then they call all of their friends who work in the real economy, I guess. You know, people who work as a chef or work in various other jobs. And these people say, oh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And you just think, well, how can they get away with promoting something like this so shamelessly? And yet when I interviewed Perth Toll, who creates these freedom indices, she had to use this vase to hide the ticker for her fund because she couldn't promote it. Well, on your video, she couldn't show the name of her fund. Yeah, that's right. She can't actually say the ticker because it would be seen as a promotion. You know, at the same time as having these ridiculous platforms being shilled, You've got people like Perth who can't even talk about a long-only freedom fund. Well, you think, well, how does that work? How did we get to this place? I mean, there's almost no regulation, right, of the crypto industry. Which is bizarre because they do the same thing which traditional finance does. Well, they're certainly promoting themselves in the same way. If you're thinking about red flags, right, it's a company based in the Bahamas. They're completely unregulated. They're running huge marketing campaigns. Like These, to me, are red flags. If you look back on the year 2000 in the dot-com bubble, 11 dot-com startups bought ads in the Super Bowl that year. But within three years, eight of those 11 companies had gone bankrupt or been acquired <laughs> for like massively knockdown prices. <laughs> Same thing this year, right? So the crypto firms that advertised in the Super Bowl, FTX, Coinbase, Crypto.com, right? FTX has just blown up. Crypto.com is wobbling, let's say. <laughs> Coinbase hopefully will be okay. Like... If I'm seeing speculative companies spending huge amounts of dollars on celebrities and advertising in the Super Bowl, I'm thinking twice about putting money with them. Yeah, in terms of red flags, I guess, you know, there's that, there's a Forbes effect. But at the end of the day, it shouldn't really be on retail investors and consumers to dig into the balance sheets as much as you can find them of different exchanges and see what's regulated by whom and how safe they are, right? That's the job of the regulator, to not let people put money into these things. But the question is, which regulator? You know, there isn't a global regulator. There are just individual country regulators. So simply by moving domicile, these companies can kind of get around it. But if you sell financial services into a country, then I think you should be regulated also by that country's regulator. That's the way it usually works. So I just don't understand how crypto got around that. The way I see it, you know, another cheesy metaphor is that cryptocurrency itself is a beautiful thing. You know, mathematically, it's based on very hard proofs, which ensure the integrity of the blockchain. Particularly if you're a nerd like me, I find it very attractive. But in order to get your money from the real world into that beautiful crystalline cathedral, you have to crawl through this sewer pipe of intermediaries, such as the exchanges, such that by the time you get into the crystal temple, you're covered in poop. 
<laughs> it's interesting you say that because if I was going to hold any cryptocurrency, I would definitely try and self-custody and not be reliant on an exchange for holding it. And I've heard it said that the role of an exchange in cryptocurrency is like the role of a public toilet. Get in, do your business and get out. <laughs> Don't stay in the poo. <laughs> but it's such a pain to do. You know, you've got your little USB stick, which is quite fiddly. You have to kind of plug it into the computer. Every time you trade, you have to move it back into the physical storage, which you can then lose, of course. I just think it wouldn't fit with my lifestyle to do that if it goes down that route where everyone has to do that it won't become mainstream no right? <laughs> most people aren't going to bother with that and it kind of gets to the heart of the question of what is crypto for i still don't <laughs> have an answer to this question Roman. <laughs> when i'm thinking about mainstream finance what it's for ultimately is capital allocation it's to funnel capital to build the bridges to research the medicines to create great works of art. Like those are the things, the productive things that are actually happening. And finance is just a way to enable that. Whereas with crypto, like what's the underlying productive stuff that it's enabling, right? It doesn't make sense to me. I kind of think of the metaphor of like a body, right? We've got our hands and the brain is there to make the hands, you know, play the piano or <laughs> build your table, right? It's there to do stuff. Whereas crypto it's just like a brain in a jar. It's not doing anything, <laughs> clever as it is. It is a technology looking for a use. But I think a lot of the excitement around crypto was that it was kind of an alternative to, you know, your mum and dad's traditional finance. You know, that's the way many people saw it. It was a kind of new, exciting thing, which would sweep away all the old stuff and reinvent the way we conduct business. But as you say, they're just reinventing a lot of the stuff that you had with TradFi, but just clothed in new format. I saw that CZ is now talking about creating what is effectively a central bank. Yeah, he wants to set up a crypto recovery fund, the lender of last resort, effectively. Yeah, which is like a central bank. And that's what we said earlier, that like crypto is learning the lessons of traditional finance on a speed run. <laughs> But it's doomed to, you know, because if you have similar problems, you'll come up with similar solutions. In some ways, it's good. So, for example, right, if you are living in a country where it's very difficult or expensive to transmit money, then things like Tether do provide a way to do that. So if you have a stable coin, which is linked to the US dollar, and it does manage to keep the peg, then you can send money very quickly across the world and very cheaply. So it does have some uses. Now, you don't necessarily have to do it with cryptocurrency. There are other ways to do it. But the, the options are limited for some people. One of the questions people are asking now is, what is the fallout going to be for crypto in the longer term? So we saw that the root cause of FTX's implosion was kind of the Terra Luna blow up earlier in the year, and then the Voyager digital blow up, and kind of the contagion from that has taken six months to play out. FTX invested in hundreds, literally hundreds of other crypto institutions and companies. Presumably the blowout from this could be massive over the next six months. And that is, I guess, why Binance is trying to get ahead of the game and set up a recovery fund. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had an email from BlockFi, which I'd already taken my money out of, but they said that, look, we've got to stop taking client money because we were bailed out by FTX and it's very sad, but, you know, we're going to have to step back from the market. So, you know, that's just one of many, many dependent entities which are going to be affected by the FTX blow up. And I think at the moment, it stayed fairly well contained within the crypto space, because that's where you get most strong relationships between cryptocurrency entities. There isn't, for example, a broker like Robinhood, for example, which is going to be negatively impacted by this, at least not immediately, at least not one I know of. 
To me, that's the big indictment here of cryptocurrency is you've got the second biggest exchange blowing up and it's had no effect on the mainstream financial system. People kept saying, oh, institutional money is coming into crypto. If that were the case, this would be affecting everyday lives and it's not. But that's a blessing, right? I mean, if it was going to affect everyday lives, this would be huge. It would be like an Enron or like a Lehman moment for the entire economy globally. Perhaps that's an argument then in favour of not regulating crypto. If it was regulated, you would see these links built up between the mainstream financial system and crypto. And when you get a big blow up in crypto, it would start taking down investment banks, for example, or whatever it might be. Whereas if you keep it as something of a grey area, it means you can't get the big players from mainstream finance directly involved, and it's kind of siloed. Or mainstream finance is always attracted to a place where there's profit. And what would happen is they'd get involved anyway, regulated or not. That's more likely to have blow-ups if there isn't some regulation for cryptocurrencies and platforms that deal in cryptocurrencies. So, you know, I'm not convinced that a lack of regulation is the solution. Yeah, I was just playing devil's advocate. But, you know, this would have been way worse, right, if Goldman Sachs owned 30% of FTX. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly that would have been <laughs> catastrophic. <laughs> but it's interesting that FTX was the poster child for traditional finance adoption of cryptocurrency because companies like BlackRock had invested some money. I mean, one other question I have is why is Bitcoin so stable right now? It's kind of been trading in the $16,000 to $20,000 range for months. That's much lower volatility than you usually see. Why is that happening? To me, that looks suspicious. <laughs> well, look, volatility is an information flow measure. So if there's a lot of information, then you'll see the prices adjusting a lot. Well, you know, now the Fed's whacked up rates. You know, there hasn't been a huge macro change recently. And another way to see a lack of volatility is death, right? So if there's a lack of interest, then there's not going to be much volatility. You know, volume is just going to be lower when there's a lack of interest. But this thing goes in cycles, right? Every time there's a new shilling cycle, I'll get lots of offers to, <laughs> to discuss cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency platforms, to which I always say no. Oh, come on, Roman, you can do that link between mainstream finance and crypto. Someone's got to do it. Unlikely. But eventually it's going to cycle again, I suspect. Because I was wondering, like, is there some cabal of rich cryptocurrency platforms which are exposed on the long side and so are propping up the value of Bitcoin and other major currencies? You know, if this was mainstream finance and one of the huge banks blew up, everything would be crashing. But everything has crashed. Yeah, so we've gone from above 20K, so 20,600. This was on 7th of November before it all panned out. Then it fell to about 15,700. Currently, it's around 16,800. I'm just paranoid, Robin. <laughs> I'm just expecting it to be ground into the dust. <laughs> and it's holding up better than I thought. This is the thing. I mean, the cryptocurrency itself isn't the thing to blame here. You know, cryptocurrency's chugging along nicely. It's doing what it's supposed to do. The really toxic thing is the sewage pipe of intermediaries, which you have to get through to get to it. And the thing I love about all of this is that Michael Lewis, who wrote The Big Short, <laughs> like the most prominent financial journalist in the world probably, has been literally <laughs> following SBF around for the last six months for a book. <laughs> like, his timing could not have been better. They're already out pitching the film rights. I'm sure Jonah Hill is clearing his diary. <laughs> like, <laughs> I will watch this movie. Yeah, it's going to be good. But look, if you look at the arguments for having an ETF for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, I think it's pretty clear that there is a really strong case because what would happen then is that the fees would suddenly fall dramatically 
because all of the fees would be done indirectly by the institution that runs the fund. And then the fee for actually trading the ETF itself would be negligible. So you could get exposure very cheaply without having to crawl through the sewer pipe. I mean, I do feel really bad for just normal people who have lost money to this crypto blow up and all the others in the past, right? Because most people are well-intentioned. They think it's going to be much bigger in the future. They like the technology, whatever. I mean, what are the learnings if you still like crypto and you want to invest in it? What would you take away from this saga? I think it's really difficult to know which are the safe exchanges. I don't think there are any safe exchanges. The reason exchanges might be safe in mainstream finance is because of the regulation, because of the government guarantees of deposits, because of the capital controls they have where they have to hold a certain amount of capital in reserve. Like those things don't apply to crypto. So there is no safety. And also the money separation rules. So for example, in the UK, you have to keep client money separate from firm money, which clearly FTX did not do. Yeah, they co-mingled FTX's client money with Alameda, the hedge funds money. I mean, that was the whole point. That's why it went wrong. If those things were in place, it would be a lot easier. But I think it's difficult to invest in cryptocurrency until that regulation is in place. I mean, I guess you have to do what we always talk about if you're keeping money on exchanges is diversify, right? Diversify, maybe spit it across multiple platforms. And there's not much else you can do because they could just be lying about their balance sheet. So how can you judge as a normal investor what it is they've got? is the answer DeFi. That's what all of those enthusiasts would say. Yeah, I think in a way it is. But there you've got your own risks. And, you know, that's certainly not a risk-free environment. So DeFi is decentralized finance where you don't even need an exchange. It's all handled by the code. But there again, you have to be careful and you have to have a lot more knowledge. So I think if there's any lesson here is it's the kind of overarching one, which is don't buy what you don't understand and be brutally honest about whether you really truly understand it or not. Yeah, because nothing could have looked more legitimate than FTX. Well, not SBF, he looked like an absolute clown. But the, <laughs> but the exchange itself you know, functioned really well. It was a good product. You wouldn't know that all of this was going on behind the scenes. No, and I think for the average investor, all I'd say is don't invest on the back of some celebrity endorsement. Make sure you understand what you're buying and don't risk more than you can afford to lose, particularly for something speculative. Now, you might think that on Pensioncraft, we just talk about stocks and bonds, and we don't talk about alternative asset classes like cryptocurrency. But in fact, we discuss all of these asset classes. So if you do want to learn about investment in a broad range of assets, then consider joining us at pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, what is a bank run? Because this term is used more or less every time a big institution blows up in finance. And it almost seems to be a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, like, oh my God, there's a bank run, it's all going to go wrong. (laughs) So what is it? Well, my first experience of a bank run was when I watched Mary Poppins, where this little boy goes to a bank teller and says, please, sir, I'd like my money back. And then the person behind him thinks that there's something going on. So he says, I want my money back. And then eventually the entire bank is swamped with people trying to get their money back. And of course, the bank doesn't have the money if everybody asks for it back at the same time. My question is, have you been sponsored by Disney today? We've got Tinkerbell, (laughs) Peter Pan, Mary Poppins. (laughs) That's just the way I see the world, unfortunately. (laughs) So that's a bank run then, is that the bank can't pay people back their money fast enough. But the thing to understand is the difference between liquidity and solvency. So solvency means that your assets, the stuff you own, 
is enough to pay back your liabilities, which is the stuff you owe, over the long term. So if you could wait long enough, you could pay back your creditors. But there may be a temporary problem with having enough cash to pay your creditors. So for example, if the stuff you own, the assets are illiquid, then it may be the case that temporarily you can't afford to pay back all of your creditors at the same time. Because I've heard it said that the main role of a bank is to borrow short and lend long. Like that's kind of what they do. Lending is part of the business and leverage is the way you scale it up so that it makes economic sense. Because if that's the case, a bank is always going to be vulnerable to a bank run, no matter how well run they are. Yeah, you can't avoid it. The only way we found of avoiding bank runs is to have a lender of last resort. So before we had central banks, there were bank runs all the time. So if you look at the UK in the 19th century, in fact, it goes into a lot of this fiction that you get from the 19th century, where a family is entirely ruined because, you know, <laughs> their bank essentially becomes insolvent and then goes bankrupt. So central banks, as a lender of last resort, avoid that. And didn't that all sort of come out of the Great Depression? Because I read that basically in America, at that point, there was no real FDIC insurance for bank deposits, for example. So everyone panicked if there was a bank run. And you can actually sort of map it out. that There was these local banks and there was a bank run in one town. And then the next town along heard yeah. about it. And they've got a different bank, but then they started withdrawing all their money. And then it kind of spread. <laughs> you see like the dominoes just spread over the country. But that's what a central bank now avoids. You know, it provides liquidity. It ensures that banks have reserves, which they have to hold with the central bank, so that they can cover some of these liabilities in a very liquid form. And if push comes to shove, it can temporarily bail out the entities, as long as they're solvent, of course. But do bank runs just apply to banks? So if you read my favourite document, which is the Financial Stability Report from the Fed, and the November edition is really interesting. I'm going to wrap that up for Christmas for you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. Nicely leather-bound Financial Stability Report. But look, they actually list runnable liabilities. Now, what does that mean? Well, firstly, it's huge. It's $19 trillion in the United States. So let's say you've got a money market fund. Now, these are the safest funds you can have, really. It's really just like cash. You put in a dollar, you can take out a dollar at any time, and you earn a tiny rate of interest. Because they invest in super safe stuff, you know, like certificates of deposit or really short-dated government liabilities or to add a bit of juice, some commercial paper. So all of this stuff has a duration of less than 180 days. So it's got very little duration risk, very little credit risk and very little return. So why is that runnable? Well, because it's not money. It feels like money. It smells like money. It's called a money market fund, but it's not money. Because what could happen is that everybody could pull out their money at the same time. And if that happens, there'll be four sellers of all of these assets. Now, one thing that worries me at the moment is that if you look at things like Tether, you know, stable coins, what are they going to buy that pegs their value to a dollar? Well, they buy exactly the same things as money market funds. Yeah, they do have commercial paper. They do have short dated treasuries. <laughs> so if everybody runs out of stablecoin at the same time, at the moment it's probably not big enough to bring down money market funds. But what will happen is the value of the assets will fall there'll be a fire sale. There'll be a fire sale. Then people pull money out of money market funds because they break the buck, as it's called. You know, the value falls below a dollar. And then we get this kind of downward spiral. 
Tether did very briefly. Yeah, I noticed that. Get down to ninety-seven cents last week, <laughs> just for like tick down. And you look at the graph, like, Boop. but yeah, it's there as a risk for sure. But these runnable liabilities, so money market funds make up about four and a half trillion of that, I think, from memory. But nineteen trillion is the total amount of runnable liabilities. And the Fed's worried about it, you can tell, because they measure it. If they didn't measure it, it would show they weren't worried about it. They should measure it, but don't put it in the report. (laughs) Don't scare us with that. (laughs) But I think in crypto, some of the implosions we've seen, so especially Terra Luna, like that was all kind of a fiction, how that was constructed. Go and listen to our episode if you want to know how. But that was basically a bank run. Like people were pulling money out quicker than they could print it. But things like this, you know, things which do enter a death spiral, it does require a a lender of the last resort. And ultimately, the Fed would be the one that bails out money market funds. They would step in. Something that big is systemically important. So you can bet the Fed would step in if money market funds started to sell off. They wouldn't save the stablecoin, interestingly, I don't think, but they would save the money market funds. Because we've talked about crypto regulation, and that is, to me, the most urgent bit. Like, forget all the Bitcoin and all the exchanges. You've got to regulate those stablecoins because they're pegged to a dollar. Yeah, if it quacks like a duck, it is a duck, right? (laughs) It is like a bank and it does pretend to be like money. So, yeah, I think that's true. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.